Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Today I'm going to be talking about Exodus chapter 14, crossing over. And for those of you who are pulling out a pew Bible and thinking that you need to refer to it, I will be putting the scripture in the New King James Version up on the screen. And, but if you like looking it in your Bible anyway, go right ahead. We're going to be dealing with crossing the Red Sea, but we're not going to get there quite yet. I'd wanted to begin the story, well, we do begin in Goshen, but how did we get there? I'd wanted to begin with Abraham. Uh, Abraham was the one to whom God gave the original promise that from him and his wife Sarah there would be a great nation, and that by him all nations would be blessed someday. But there was no time to talk about Abraham, so I can't do that. They did have a son, Isaac, who in turn had twin sons, Jacob and Esau, with Jacob being preeminent over Esau. Again, I don't have time to talk about them. Jacob had 12 sons and a daughter. And all of these stories, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, They're all worth reading in in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. Um, Jacob, if there's a soap opera in Scripture, it is the story of Jacob. And one of his sons, number 11 out of 12, was, was Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by 10 of his older brothers, and he ended up in Egypt. Again, it's a great story. I can't really cover it here, except to say that God used Joseph to save Egypt from starvation. And God elevated Joseph from being a slave, not speaking the language, not knowing anything, to actually running the kingdom of Egypt, second to only Pharaoh himself. And that Joseph, in turn, brought his family in, not with any revenge in mind, but to save them from starvation as well. And they came in, and they settled in Goshen. And he told them when they came in, he said, be sure you, when Pharaoh asks what you do, say that you're shepherds, which wasn't a lie, because that's what they were. It turns out the Egyptians had a low view of shepherds, and they would rather have somebody be shepherds for them who wasn't Egyptians. So when they came in and they said, hey, there's some... We're shepherds. They said, great, you can be shepherds for us in Goshen. And that's what they did. And time went by. Over 300 years went by. And they went from a group of 70 people to hundreds of thousands of people. And a pharaoh took over. A pharaoh who didn't remember what Joseph had done. You see, for for many years, the children of Israel were a protected group within Egypt because of what Joseph had done, but no more. This pharaoh saw all of these people that weren't Egyptians and was scared. You see, in Egypt, if you weren't born an Egyptian, you weren't an Egyptian. And not only that, your children were never going to be Egyptians, and their children were never going to be Egyptians, and so on and so on. 
100, 200, 300 years. It didn't matter. They weren't going to be, they were always going to be the other to Egypt. And this pharaoh, well, he said, we need to do something about it. We're going to put them to labor. We're going to put them to hard labor. We're going to try to control their population. So that's what they did. They took this group of people, not somebody that they had conquered, not somebody that had rebelled, but somebody that had, a group of people living peaceably within their borders for generations and enslaved them to hard labor. It didn't control the population. Well, the pharaoh didn't know what to do next, thought about it, and said, okay, we're going to have to take extreme measures. All the infant male children are going to be executed right after birth. That's the time that Moses was born in, that time. Moses was a beautiful baby, and his mother tried to preserve his life, but she couldn't, but for only so long. And she finally, well, she put him in a basket and sent him down the river. That doesn't seem like much of a plan, but she didn't have a lot of options. She had to do something. So she put him in a basket, sent him down the river, and trusted God to take care of him. And he did. The basket drifted to a group of women. They were Egyptian women. Uh, it was the Pharaoh's daughter and her entourage. And they were bathing in the river. So this basket floated up. She fell in love with the beautiful baby and raised it as her own. So Moses grew up in Egypt. He, he learned how to read, write. He learned mathematics. He learned military strategy. He learned how to swing a sword. He learned all of those things. At the same time, he was aware of who he was. And maybe there were some other people in the royal family who reminded him of who he was, that he wasn't really an Egyptian. Moses, by the time he was 40, he felt like he had to do something. He had good intentions but he made bad decisions. There was uh, an overseer that was beating some Israeli slaves, and, and he reacted. Whether intentionally or not, he ended up killing the overseer. Maybe he was waiting for a reaction from the children of Israel that maybe they would see him as a leader. That didn't happen. Maybe he didn't plan, have a plan at all, and he just reacted. But the response that he got from the children of Israel was bad, and he knew that this crime had been witnessed, and it was only a matter of time that he'd be arrested. So he had no choice, regardless of what his intentions were. He had to flee, and he went to Midian, up north, got married, ended up a shepherd. Remember that job that the Egyptians didn't really like to do, and they liked to get non-Egyptians to do it? Well, that's what Moses did for the next 40 years. Years And I like to think that Moses sometimes would take some rocks and he'd put them down and he'd play war games. You know, he had military training. So, you know, played with the rocks while he was watching the sheep and the goats. That was his life. That was his lot. Egypt was far behind. Until the burning bush. The bush that was burning but wasn't consumed. The bush that started talking to him. The bush that turned out to be a representation of God, calling Moses to go back to Egypt. And there were subsequent conversations about this 
God saying, go back to Egypt. Moses saying, well, I don't know if I'm the right guy for the job. How about my brother? But no, God wanted Moses to do it. Yes, he'd let Aaron come along and help him out. But that was the job for Moses to do. We have a popular image of Moses today, thanks to movies like The Ten Commandments. For those of you under the age of 30, uh, Ten Commandments was a famous movie, um, and it was starred somebody named Charlton Heston, who at that time, and when I was growing up, was still a uh, famous movie star. Some of you might say Charlton who? Okay. The only thing I can get from this image that, that might have been realistic is that Charlton Heston was not 80 when he was portraying an 80-year-old Moses, so he looked really good. But I think Moses did too. I don't think he was quite as old as what we think 80 is today. We're going to get to the plagues because that's what's next. Moses is going to be asking Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh's going to say no. And did the Egyptians deserve it? It seems like an awfully mean thing to have one plague after another, 10 of them, to Egypt. But think about it. 400 years, over 400 years went by. And the Israelites were not accepted as people as within Egypt. They, they were something else. They were the other. You know, in less than in a little over two years, it's going to be 2020. And you go back 400 years, that's 1620. That's when the pilgrims landed. So think about that, apply it here. They've been in Egypt for a very long time, and they're still considered this other population, one that can be enslaved, one that could be killed. A nation that would today take male infants and kill them, they'd call that institutionalized genocide, and there'd be a huge outcry all around the world. And finally, they didn't turn to God themselves through the plagues, there may have been individual Egyptians that did, but as a nation, they did not. They still clung to their gods that were unable to help them through the plagues. Okay. Oh, there we go. Pardon me. I have some technical difficulties. Uh, the first plague, I'm going to go through them really quickly. I'm going to introduce a god it's important because they had a pantheon of gods, a god for pretty much any, anything. And actually, they had gods, multiple gods, that would deal with the same thing. So when you had the plagues, you also had Egyptian gods that couldn't do anything about it, Egyptian gods that they trusted and revered and worshipped. Okay? The first one was the plague of water turned to blood, and they had a god called Happy, the god of fertility and water, who couldn't do anything about it. And then we had the plague of frogs. Now, I think frogs are cool, but think about hundreds of thousands of frogs, and then think about them in your living room. It's not so good, is it? And they had a goddess, Heket, goddess of childhood and fertility. Uh, she had a frog's face, so she was not the goddess of beauty. And then we had the plague of gnats, which could be lice or it could be um, fleas. And Geb was the god of the earth, and he was supposed to protect against things like that. He couldn't. And the plague of flies, Nut, the goddess of the sky, unfortunately named, couldn't do anything about it. 
And by the way, I don't know if you've seen a plague of flies before I, in your home. I lived in a home once, and there were these flies that came out of the window. I guess they were nested in the window, and they came out one after the other, and they were like bottlenose flies. They're, it was gross. It was scary. It was funny for a little bit, and then it wasn't funny anymore. Now imagine that everywhere, inside and out. That was the plague that they had. And then they had diseased livestock. Hathor, the goddess of love and protection. No protection. Plague of boils. Anybody ever had a boil? Raise your hand. Painful? Right? Okay, they had them all over the place. I had a boil once, it was terrible. And uh, Sekhmet, the goddess of doctors and healing, couldn't do anything about it. Plague of hail. Set the storm god. That's one of the big gods in the pantheon. Again, couldn't do anything about it. We know that these gods didn't exist, but they worshipped them and revered them. And all the time this is happening, the, the, the Egyptians themselves are getting an idea of what's happening and that the children of Israel aren't being affected, at least after the first few plagues, and that their god was somehow involved and that their gods couldn't stop them. And, and maybe they got a sense that, that they wanted to leave, and they had somebody going up to the pharaoh and asking him to go, and the pharaoh was saying no, and then they'd have the next plague that would happen. And the next plague was the plague of locusts. Osiris was the god of afterlife, resurrection, agriculture, and he was one of the really big gods. He might have been the biggest god, and he couldn't do anything about it. There might have been one that was bigger, and that was Ra, the sun god. And he couldn't do anything about the darkness that they had. Pharaoh kept saying no. Now, why did he do that? Well, he was the lord of the two lands. And the two lands were the upper Nile and the lower Nile. Now, the um, lower Nile was actually in the north because the, the Nile flowed from the south to the north. So um, then the upper Nile was in the south. But those two were originally separate, and, and when the pharaohs took over thousands of years earlier, they, they combined it, and it became part of their mythology. And he was the high priest of every temple, so he was not only running the country, but he was head of the religion. And he was supposed to maintain ma'at, which is universal harmony, which was disturbed by all of these plagues, and he was considered God on earth to the people of Egypt. And he was holding the line. He was not going to give in to this upstart uh, Israeli god. Even if the whole country was go wanted the, the children of Israel to leave, he was going to hold fast. It's, it's almost noble until you think about what it is he's holding fast to. Okay, the tenth plague, when God kills the Egyptians' firstborn. That was what happened. Now, Moses told Pharaoh it's going to happen to the Egyptians and not to the Israelites. Moses told the Israelites, it will not happen to you if you follow my instructions. And the instructions had to do with what to eat, when to eat it, some things to remember for the future, but most importantly, to take a goat or a sheep and, and to sacrifice it and to take the blood and put it on the top of the doorpost and along the sides and stay in the house all night. And maybe if you had friends who weren't um, 
Israeli, bring them into your house too if you love them. And that's what happened. And the oldest male child and the oldest male um, animal died. It was terrible. Finally, Pharaoh said, leave, go. And he did. And they began in uh, Ramses, and they went east towards Sakoth. And this is a map of the route that they went. You see uh, a solid red line going down the Sinai Peninsula. And that was every, where everyone agreed they went. There are some dotted lines. There are some dashed lines towards the top um, near Goshen. And that those are the routes that they may have taken when they crossed um, to go over to the Sinai Peninsula. One of those routes is crossing the Red Sea at the top, and then there are other routes that are crossing other bodies of water to the north. Uh, the Red Sea in Genesis could be translated to be Sea of Reeds. So it may have been the Red Sea, it may have been another body of water, but it was deep enough, and it was wide enough for God to have needed to perform a miracle for the children of Israel to cross it. It was deep enough and it was wide enough for the Egyptians to think that they were trapped against a body of water that they couldn't cross. Now we're finally getting to some scripture. We're really going to begin not in 14, but at the end of chapter 13, 17 to 18. And this is from the New King James, same translation that's in the pews. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Yes, they could have gone north right by the Mediterranean and they would have run right into the Philistines. The Philistines were going to fight first and ask questions later. And God knew the hearts of the people, and he knew that they wouldn't immediately trust him in this circumstance, but instead, they would do something that they would do over and over again in the future, and that is to say, I wish I was a slave again in Egypt. 19 and 20. So Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Sakath, and they camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. So Joseph did have a prophetic word that they would be going back, and he wanted his bones to go with them, and they did. 20 to 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So the people had their own GPS. Now we're at Exodus chapter 14, 1 to 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, 
between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the, of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So God's giving Moses a heads up as to what was to come, that Pharaoh would be puzzled by why they were going the way they were going and and thought that maybe they were lost and at the same time hardening his heart and so that he would plan to go back and get them. Five to seven. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the servants had fled and the heart of the Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people and they said, why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him also. He took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with the captains over every one of them. Okay, Egypt was a big country and they had multiple armies. But the biggest army was the one right around the capital. So they had a lot of infantry, they had a lot of horsemen, they had a lot of chariots. And they had 600 chariots and that was the Pharaoh's, that was his strike force, that was his special ops. They could move fast, they could strike hard, and that's what they sent after the children of Israel. 8 to 10, the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness, so the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them, camping by the sea, beside Pi-Hahiroth before Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. They were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So, yeah, at first the children of Israel were bold. They didn't know anyone was chasing them. But then things changed, and they realized that the Egyptians were coming. Now, the Egyptians, what they did is they ended up camping because it was the, it was the end of the day and they, they had them pinned down by, by the water. They could just spend the night and then in the morning they could go take the people and bring them all back or kill them or both. Then they said to Moses, that's the, the children of Israel, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. I've been teaching through this book. That's not how it went down. Yeah, they complained a little bit, but they didn't say anything like this. They're, they're manufacturing memories here. And unfortunately, this is something that they would do over and over again after they've crossed the Red Sea. They would continue to act like slaves. They would continue to look back at a time of slavery, and not just slavery. They, it was severe slavery. It wasn't easy slavery. They'd look back at it and say, those were the good days. I can't believe we're having the problems that we're having now. And that's how they were now. 
And Moses, I'm sure he did cry out to God because in 13 and 14, well, we'll look at uh, God's going to talk to Moses, but first Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Moses had been prepared by God and he told the people, don't worry about it, God's going to take care of it. But then he did go himself and cry out to the Lord. We know this because in 15, going to 18, the Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh, over his army, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So God's taken personally what Pharaoh's been doing, and he's going to teach him something. 19 and 20, the angel of the Lord who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of the cloud, the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus, it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all night. So you got to picture this, okay? There was a pillar of fire already, it moved to the back between Egypt and the Israelites. But then the pillar of cloud, which had been seen in the daytime, made a nighttime appearance and was in front of the Egyptians. So the Egyptians couldn't see anything. They would have sent people out during the night just to see what was going on. They couldn't because the fog was impassable, the smoke was impassable. And... That was a provision by God so that the Egyptians couldn't make any plans until the morning. 14, 21 to 23, And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went out into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right-hand side and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, all the Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So Moses, while it was still nighttime, was stretched out his hand, wind blew, and the water started to part. After a while, and we're figuring right around dawn, the people started to cross on dry land. So this is something they could walk on, and it's something that a chariot could also drive on. And you had walls of water on the left and the right. Now, I've seen Science Channel, History Channel, where they sort of, they would say, how did they cross the Red Sea? And there would be all these theories. And you'd say, well, there was a wind. And you see the wind, and it's sort of been like this little indentation of sort of muddy ground. But that's not what we see here. We see dry land, wall of water on your left-hand side, wall of water on your right-hand side, and that's not supposed to happen except that it's a miracle. And the, the chariots, when they saw this, because it was dawn, they started moving too, and the smoke had dissipated at this point so they could move. 
They followed them, and they were chasing them. 24 to 25, now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the, of the Egyptians, and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty, and the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So the ground was dry enough for chariots to, to go on easily, so God just made the wheels fall off. I didn't realize that until I was studying for this. It's like, whoa, really? The wheels fell off? Once that happened, the Egyptians suddenly remembered everything that had happened before. Oh, wait a minute. This is the God that did all those plagues. Oh, we're in trouble. And I'm sure that a lot of them started running in the other direction. Because how are you going to go in a chariot without wheels? It's going to drag, right? Imagine that. You know, it's going... Wouldn't work. Wouldn't work. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth. While the Egyptians were fleeing into it, so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So those walls of water fell back and knocked... Uh, I'm sure they knocked all the soldiers senseless. And even if they could swim, they've been knocked senseless. They're wearing armor. They're wearing uh, clothing that, that's going to get waterlogged. And, and, you know, unless you're trained to do that, it's really, really difficult to um, swim with clothing. I don't know if anyone's ever swum with clothing before. I learned to be a lifeguard, and I had to learn how to swim with clothing. It's not an easy thing. So I am sure that they were all done for. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they were. 28 and 29, Then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, and not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right-hand side and on their left. So God made the wall of water, the dry land, Israelites made, made it through, collapsed on the chariots that were there, and those chariots, including those 600 strike force chariots, they were all lost, the horses were lost, the people were lost. 28 and 29, so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And they did, for now. But in the book of Exodus, again and again, when they would run into trouble, they would wish that they were back as slaves in Egypt. Well, here's an overhead picture of the, Egypt, of the Israelites filing in and going across. I like to think about this. I heard a story about it once from Don Carson about um, two people, two men, and this, they're walking across, and one of them is striding, and he's saying, well, you know, God did all these miracles, and, and now he's doing a miracle for here, for us, so we can be free. I have 
complete confidence in walking across, we're going to make it safe to the other side. But other people, and I think I would have been one of these other people, would have been walking across saying, I hope I don't die. I don't want to die. That water could fall on us. Are you sure this is a good idea? Well, I guess the, we don't want those chariots to catch us. Still, we might die. I hope I don't die. I think some people would be like that. But it didn't matter how they felt about it. What mattered was they were putting one foot in front of the other, and they were walking across. And that was important. I'm going to come back to it. There are a couple takeaways here. If you're a Christian, you're no longer a slave to sin and freed from the power of death. In this story, you could take being a slave in Egypt and you can replace it with being a slave to sin. In this story, you could take the chariots and you could replace that with death. And you can replace crossing the Red Sea with trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. It all fits. As promised through many prophecies, Jesus Christ came down on earth to be fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life, and he came down for the purpose of dying for our sins, taking our sins upon himself, and then he rose again. And so many of us here today know this because we've experienced it, we understand it, we trust it, because by trusting him, that is how we can become saved. We can't save ourselves any more than the children of Israel could save themselves, but God made a way for them to be saved, and they walked across. In the same way, the gospel is the way that we can be saved, but we have to trust And if you are a Christian, that means that we're not a slave to sin and we're free from the power of death. And there's a lot in Scripture, in the Gospels and in the Epistles, and I picked out Romans 6 because there's a whole chapter devoted to it, that deals with these things. And and we need to be reminded sometimes because we run into difficulties and we say, I wish it was back to the way I was 30 years ago. Things weren't so bad when you weren't a Christian. Um, it's possible for us as Christians to have the slave mentality. We spend the rest of our lives in following Jesus and working out, out of that slave mentality to sin and fear of death. And I do it, and you do it. And, and, and as a church, we help each other on that walk. But for those of you who aren't a Christian, and actually some of you may have needed to hear the gospel in, in a fuller way than I have done today, and I hope you come back because that does happen here a lot. But I, I have some other people in mind. Imagine, if you will, some people standing on the shore there saying, okay, I believe that God's done all these wonderful things with all the plagues. I believe that God has put those walls of water up and that we can go across. You guys go, I'll catch up. But he didn't walk across himself. Is that person saved? No. Person's going to be run down by the chariots. Now, these days, we don't have chariots, we have death. Sometimes you can see death coming. A lot of times you can't. 
Um, next year, I'm gonna, I will have grad, been graduated from high school for 40 years. There were 227 people in my high school class. We've lost a dozen people. Half of them have died suddenly. So it's not like chariots that may not be chariots that you can see and hear that are coming up on you. You may feel like you have a chance to make a decision, even though you've heard the gospel, and even though you may say you believe in Jesus, because people have told me, I believe in Jesus, just not like you do. Dave, right? We had that conversation. And, and if some of you have been told the same thing. And there may be people here today that have said that to somebody else. And, and I'm here to say that if, if that's what you believe, you really don't believe at all. You're like the person who would be standing on the shore saying, go ahead, I believe it too, but I'm going to stay here. No, you really, you have to walk across. They had to walk across in order to be saved. You, if you have not trusted in Jesus, you need to do that. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.